Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Chris Compton, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. And welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with American champion Chris Compton about family, learning to focus and face-to-face versus online bridge. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm great, Jocelyn. How are you? I'm fine. I thought of you last night. We were playing at the club, and at the very end, one of the opponents still sitting at our table looks at the bridge mate and says to his partner, what do you think? And his partner said, 59 and a half. And I was kind of blown away by that, like that you would think that you had such a good game. I mean, that's a good score. Like, I feel that even though I've gotten used to playing online where you get your results much more quickly, I feel like I'm still very bad at predicting my results. Sometimes I think things have not gone well, and it turns out we did fine. That was an example last night. I thought we were under 50. Yeah. Well, it turns out that we actually were over 50, not by much. We were at a 52 point something. Very nice. And the opponents had a 49.4. But I just thought it was so funny that like he wasn't particularly like, he wasn't joking. He just said 59 and a half. Okay. That's what he expected to get. And I thought that was, I thought that was funny because I can't imagine feeling like I got a 59 and a half. (laughs) (laughs) But were they kind of gloating or was it just all very matter of fact? Matter of fact. Huh. Matter of fact. Well, you know, at the end of a game, I might 
have a little discussion with myself about, oh, how do I think we did? Right. But I have been humbled too many times now in my bridge career. So if I ever get a result 50% or greater, I am so delighted. And I always go in now with a degree of trepidation because I don't have any confidence at all what my result's going to be. I think we've done well and we've come last. I think we've come last and we end up getting 55. I've got no idea. Right. What do you think people take into account when they're trying to make these calculations? Well, that's what I just was fascinated by that because he was quite off, but it's also not the typical scenario that we are playing at one big game at this club. Yeah. There's usually this division. And so I had to think that that played a role in that he probably got some terrific boards, he thought, because of, I don't know, taking advantage of less experienced players, maybe. But then again, if we all had to play against the same people, that should have sort of evened out, I would think. So I don't know. It was just it was just interesting to me, the predicting thing. I've often noticed in the past, sometimes I think I had a terrible game and it turns out it was a great game. Other times I thought we were doing fine. We got a terrible score. Yeah. Horrifying. That's the worst. I think those are the worst. <laughs> One time I was playing with a partner and we thought we were doing great and we came like second last or something and we were both so shocked we actually called the director. <laughs> oh my goodness. He was like, no, you just didn't do well. But we really thought we were doing great. It was so embarrassing. So embarrassing. Oh my God. Right. No, that's the, that is definitely the worst. It's much better to be pleasantly surprised. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We got a 59.5%. Yeah. But anywho, it was just a, something I, I noticed and it was striking. Yeah. How did they react when they got the 49? I didn't go up to them afterwards and say, Hey, you know, you were off by over 10 percentage points. <laughs> How do you feel about that? These are very experienced players. Sure. They have seen it all, been there, done that. It was just, it was just funny. Um, yeah. Oh my God. Last night, there were so many, also so many crazy things that happened. First, I made an insufficient bid and it produced this whole long torture drama that had people asking what happened what happened I'm like I made an insufficient bid <laughs> I made it sufficient it was no big whoop so that was another thing and then this other thing happened that was pretty funny so my partner opened a club and then rebid clubs I had bid a spade so what club a spade two clubs and then I just went to three no trump which as it turns out was where we're supposed to be right she put down Five clubs, singleton spade, other points. We have the points for three no trump. It all looks good. Except at one point, the opponent accidentally knocks the lowest card from the club suit over to the spade suit. In fact, she had only four clubs and two spades. So she should have been the one opening <laughs> one no trump. It should have played from her side. Anyway, it was just a very ridiculous comedy of errors like a clown show there i and i was blithely playing along thinking she had only one spade so that's going to just be able to go once through to try to finesse against uh opponents whatever's but no there were two of them so that worked out really really well it's just crazy <laughs> something in the air yes 
people were like, what happened at your table? Oh, God. One of those nights. <laughs> yes. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Midge from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and I'm a listener supporter of Story Partner. What I love about the show is that it takes bridge seriously, but it doesn't take it too seriously. It's a lot of fun anecdotes and comments from the interviewers, and they ask great questions. They really keep the tone fun, but you learn a lot and have fun learning it. Here's how I supported the show. I went to their website and found a link on how to support the show, and it was very easy. If you're thinking about supporting the show, please do. We want to keep it on the air. And we're back. So, Jocelyn, we've had some letters in the mailbag. Would you like me to read them to you? Oh, Catherine, of course I would. All right, then. Here we go. So our first letter is from David, and he's writing to us from Vancouver in Canada. Hi, David. Thanks for writing. Greetings, David. <laughs> David says, hi, Catherine and Jocelyn. I have been listening to your podcast and I'm enjoying it immensely. Oh, well, thank you very much. I took up Duplicate Bridge at my local club in 2017 after a long hiatus from my university days in the 1960s. Due to the pandemic, I no longer play face-to-face -face bridge and miss it, but I get my bridge fix by playing online. Then he says, I enjoyed face-to-face -face bridge and the socialising that took place at my local bridge club. One woman, Florence, a very chic and alert person, told the bridge table that she had recently turned 90 and to celebrate had taken a flight to visit her daughter. At the airport, upon check-in, she handed over her passport and ticket to the attendant who, noticing that Florence was 90 years old, asked her if she was flying alone. Without skipping a beat, Florence said she hoped the pilot might join her. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, so playing bridge keeps you sharp. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Another player I enjoyed talking to at the Bridge Club was an 86-year-old retired physician. He related to me that the most important thing to remember about Bridge is that it should be fun, and if you don't have fun playing it, then give up the game. So playing Bridge reminds you of what is important, which is so true. He says you don't always get these delightful stories when you're playing online. Then he signs off by saying, I look forward to future episodes, love the format, from David. So thanks again, David. That's so sweet of you for writing in. Thank you. And bridge is life. <laughs> yeah, bridge is life. Bridge is life. And we'll own up to it. That's a Ted Lasso reference in case anyone wants to let us know. We know it's a Ted Lasso <laughs> reference. Okay. And we have another letter from Debbie from North Carolina. Hi, Debbie. Thank you for writing. Hey, Debbie. Thanks so much. Debbie says, my 93-year-old mother recently moved to a retirement community. She has played bridge all her life and is a good, solid player, having achieved life master status in her 80s. She learned to play online and we now regularly play casual games on BBO. She was talking to some of her new neighbours and trying to assess the level of bridge in the community. After asking them what conventions they played and not receiving encouraging responses, she asked them if they used convention cards. One of the women hesitated, then responded, no, we just use regular playing cards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
oh. Then she says, my mother is still looking for more bridge players. Oh, your poor mum. <laughs> oh, I remember when that was me, though. I didn't know what conventions were, and I was trying to find people to play with. And I put an ad on Craigslist. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just because I had no idea how else somebody would find people to play with. Oh, well, that's so enterprising <laughs> of you, Jocelyn. Well, I just didn't know. I didn't know about duplicate clubs. I didn't know anything. I yeah. just knew a little party bridge and I wanted to find people to play with. So somebody answered my ad and said, what conventions do you play? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about or something to that effect, whatever yeah. you would say on Craigslist. I'm not really <laughs> sure. What do you mean? And this person said, I think you might need to, to sign up for some lessons. You can go to the local club. So that was how I originally found the club that is actually so close to my house and where I've been playing ever since very happily. Oh, well, that is so nice. And, and that person was so nice to give you those pointers because once you're inside that community, obviously you know your way around, but wow, it can be quite hard to, to find your way in. So um, more power to your mom, Debbie, for, <laughs> for pursuing it. And, and I hope you two continue to be able to enjoy playing together online. And thank you so much for writing. Thanks, Debbie. So if you've got a good story about guesstimating your results after a game or making an insufficient bid or missorting your hand with disastrous or maybe not results, We'd love to hear them. You can send us an email at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram, or you can send us a voice message. These links are all in the show notes and on the website, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Chris Compton. American champion Chris Compton began playing bridge professionally at the age of 17. He is a world grandmaster and an ACBL Grand Life Master. He is a five-time winner of the Barry Crane Top 500 Master Point Race and has won the Von Zedwitz Life Master Open Pairs, the Roth Open Swiss, the Jacoby National Swiss Teams, and the Reisinger Border Match Teams. He also enjoys playing high-stakes rubber bridge at TGR's Bridge Club when he's in London. We began by asking about his earliest memory of bridge. My earliest memory of bridge is playing around a kitchen table with my uh, biological mother and a uh, child psychologist because I was so overactive. They were always trying to find something for me to do. And they thought bridge would keep my mind busy. And I have to say that they were right. Bridge does keep your mind busy. I think I was 11 years old. <laughs> Do you remember the circumstances? Do you remember any of the details of that experience? No, I remember taking my old carom board, a game board, and skipping school and staying home and dealing out hands and keeping the cards separate. I'd learned to keep the cards separate uh, at the duplicate. And I would sit there and play the cards and then unfold all the cards and reconstitute the hands and then play the same hand again. And I remember doing this for hours and hours when I, of course, should have been off in seventh grade taking social studies. <laughs> I have distinct memories of skipping school uh, from junior high on Fridays and Mondays 
and walking out to Rice University in Houston, Texas, and wandering into the dorms and playing bridge with the college students. So I would much rather have been playing bridge. How do you go from sitting with your mother and a child psychologist right. to the local duplicate club? In a bit of randomness, we had moved in 1973 from Kansas City, maybe 1974, to Houston, Texas. And uh, another woman in the neighborhood named Catherine Peterson just happened to be, she played in the novice game uh, at the local club. And uh, she drug me out to the local club. And uh, I soon found that I enjoyed it. And uh, I remember that they, quote, gave me a job, which would allow me to not have to pay the $2 entry fee. And my job was pouring beer from the beer tap for the older players. <laughs> but it, I didn't actually imbibe myself. I, I was a bit of a conundrum. On the one hand, I was a little wild. But on the other hand, I wasn't into alcohol or drugs until a much later time in life. So you started playing regularly at that club with your neighbor. It's actually quite a nice story. At, at that time, I started playing regularly at that club. The club was owned by a couple who had uh, no children of their own, and I was being raised by a single mother in what's called a shattered family. And the local Episcopalian church said that I was getting a little wild and they wanted me to go live in the religious community. And that was a group of old Victorian houses with multiple families. And uh, I said, well, nobody's really asked me. You, you don't want me to live with my mother anymore, but I think I'd rather live with the people that own the bridge club. <laughs> well, I was 13 years old. That's what I wanted. I knew what I wanted. And uh, they said, well, let's have a meeting about this. And we found that the, much to my great relief, the couple, Stephen Charlotte Honnett, was willing to actually uh, quasi-adopt me. But we had a big meeting at the church, and I will never forget they all came out and they said, no, no, this is not going to work. You have to go live in, in the religious community. It turned out, of course, the major reason that it wouldn't work was because he was Jewish, Stephen Hoddett, and she was a Gentile, and they wouldn't agree to promise to raise me in a Christian household. And so the church couldn't release me into a non-Christian household. So I bolted from the meeting at the church and literally hitchhiked across town to the bridge club where I played in the bridge game that night. And I went home and spent the night on the couch of a woman named Jan Wall. Her name was Jan Elkins at the time. She eventually married Haymont Law, and together Haymont and Jan Law had a son, Justin Law. All pretty well-known bridge people, certainly in the American bridge community. Wow. So did you stay on that sofa? Well, they actually, they found Jesus themselves, I believe, because they determined that if I had run away to the bridge club, I might run away farther the next time. And uh, maybe I could go live with the people that own the bridge club after all. And uh, to close that story, on March 1st of this year, that woman, Charlotte Honnett, passed away at age 94, having lived with me and my wife in our guest house since 1992. And it's actually quite a nice story when it comes around in a circle. Oh, that is lovely. And she got to see you just turn into this major bridge figure. It was fascinating. Forget the bridge even. She never had a child. She got me, I was age 13, and she lasted till 94, till our own two daughters are 23 and 26. And so she was able to see for herself the circle of life, starting sort of in the middle. And it was a couple that were, for different reasons, had never been able to have children. And so, yes, it was wonderful for me. It gave me some chance of straightening out. 
and flying, right? But it worked well for Bert too, and uh, it was good for everybody. And certainly my children came to know her as their, as their grandmother. And uh, it is truly a nice story for Bridge. I am in many ways a child of Bridge, and I understand that. And I owe Bridge because of that. Such a beautiful story. So it sounds like your initial love of Bridge was, was complicated. It wasn't just a simple love of the game. It involved these other aspects of your life. But was there a time when it crystallized that there was something really special about this game for you? I can recall being in theology class and doodling bridge hands. And my notebooks were full of bridge hands. And what happened for me from bridge was they were always saying, Chris, you've got to have discipline. I was a wild child. I had been raised. I was what was called a latchkey child. I never had a babysitter. When I came home from school, I went out in the street and played with my friends. And so you have no discipline. And indeed, I had absolutely no discipline in any area of my life. And Bridge, I owe a great debt of gratitude because it showed me clearly that if I applied myself to something for long enough, that I could uh, become quite competent. And eventually, uh, taking a mere 12 years to complete undergraduate, I uh, did finish college and I then went to what is thought to be quite a good law school. But playing Bridge all the time. My first week of law school was Labor Day in the United States, and uh, it was 1994, and there was a world championship in Geneva, Switzerland. And what was I to do but skip class on Friday, the end of my first week, take a plane to Geneva, Switzerland, play Saturday and Sunday in a two-day world mixed pairs, fly back on Monday Memorial Day, and turn up in the emergency room sick as a dog on Tuesday morning because, of course, I had drunk my way across the Atlantic both directions. I've since learned at a little older age not to drink when you're flying long flights. So I'm, I'm curious to know, in what ways have your legal career and your bridge career intersected? Well, there was here in Dallas a company called SCA Promotions owned by Robert Hammond, Bob Hammond, uh, the world's number one ranked bridge player for approximately 18 years. It's known officially as Bob's Home for Wayward Bridge Players. For instance, Bart Bramley works there. Haymont Lowell worked there. I can't go on. But Bob had basically a casino for corporate America, where corporate America could lay off large, unlikely risks, and he could price them. And Bob loved the brain that was a good bridge player. And Bob loved helping bridge players develop, still does. And so after I finished law school, I, I, I took a job in Oklahoma City for three years, representing school districts. It was fascinating work. It paid very poorly, but it was all what we call constitutional law, and it was an intellectual feast. Bob was only about 200 miles away in Dallas, Texas, and they offered me a job as in-house counsel. And I think July 1st of 1997, if I remember correctly, we moved to Dallas and uh, we still live there now. So the connections in the bridge world are incredibly strong in the legal community. Donna is also a full-time lawyer, my wife. We only do essentially bridge disciplinary matters. We only do about one a year, but it's uh, fun for us. We've done a lot of them now after 25 or 30 years of it. And uh, it's, a, it's a nice change from playing bridge constantly. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Do you like playing online bridge or do you prefer face-to-face? I love playing any form of bridge, and I see the bridge world in a bit of a crisis at the moment, split between those that are certain that face-to-face bridge is superior and those that are certain that online bridge is superior. To me, it's like freestyle skiing and slalom skiing. They are related. They're both skiing, but yet they are different. And it is very clear to me to let each of face-to-face and online develop organically. In other words, however many people want to play face-to-face, let's make it so they can all play face-to-face. However many people want to play online, let's make it so they can play online. And let's break apart the products. Let's have an online master point contest. Let's have a face-to-face master point contest. As regards the specific issue of having my opponent to watch while I'm playing face-to-face bridge. Well, yes, I pride myself in being able to read my opponents. But unfortunately, the history of bridge has indicated that if I can see my opponent, that I can often see my partner. And being able to see my partner is a huge detriment to bridge. It causes all sorts of problems at the lowest levels. When people fail fail to alert, you will just sit and watch and their partner bolts up, their eyes jump up and they give them darts and they're looking at each other and nobody says anything about it. And we really go on, but there's no two ways about it. This is a form of cheating. And if we have to give up the ability to see our opponents in order to clean the game of the scourge that is cheating, then it's certainly worth it to me not to be able to read my opponent and able to play in as clean a game as we possibly can. Having said that, people will always cheat. So as soon as we're playing all electronically, we'll have to wand the players. We'll find people that have wires in their hearing aids. We'll have a whole other set of problems. 
But the important thing is not to try to force the people that want to play face-to-face to play online, not to try to force the people that want to play online to play face-to-face. Bridge is there for everyone's enjoyment. And the administrators shouldn't try and stack the deck in favor of one form of the game or the other. They should let it develop organically. Do you have a favorite tournament that you like to play? Well, there's a tournament in Long Beach, California, in Los Angeles. It happens to be held very close to the beach. It happens to be usually the first week of July. And the weather is usually 72 to 78 degrees. It's nearly perfect. You're on the water. And meanwhile, back in Dallas, Texas, where we live, it's 103. So we're very fond of Long Beach, just because it has the restaurants and the music. And in this case, it has the Pacific Ocean. It has the cool breezes. So it's a pretty spectacular site for what we call a regional bridge tournament. You've mentioned music a couple of times. What kind of music do you like? We're big Broadway walks. We like to go and see Broadway. I think I hopefully have a taste for all kinds of music. I enjoy the Japanese pianist uh, Nobuyuko Suji, who is truly a inspiration to the world. He was born blind. He's one of the world's top performing concert pianist, and he's never read a sheet of music. So if you want to be inspired in life, you go listen to the pianist Nobuyuko Suji. I know I'm maybe... um dwelling on this too much, but I'm quite fascinated. There's music, there's law, and there's bridge. Do you think that the reasons you have gravitated towards these three things are connected? It's completely clear to me, and I think it's even been proven, that music and bridge stimulate the same area of the brain, and that it is an area that you don't necessarily use for other things. And so to take a moment here and say, I used to think that being a bridge professional was a fairly uh, non-socially redeemable thing. I mean, what in the world is socially redeemable about taking a check at the end of the week for sitting at a card table? But it turns (laughs) out that we're doing something incredibly valuable for our brain. Just like doctors tell you, you should walk two hours a day. Your doctor should be telling you to play chess or go or bridge to walk your brain two hours every day. And I think all the bridge players think can think of it this way. It's five minutes to game time and you're in the playing area. You're probably already to the table. If you think about it, your brain is jumping alive in anticipation of solving the puzzles that are about to come. I, I really do feel like an opera singer who warms up in the eaves, that you probably should go hop on BBO and play one hand of bridge before you sit down to play. It's all fascinating. And a couple of people that worked on this are Maurice Seligman from the University of Pennsylvania and Bobby Spellman from the University of Virginia. They've done a lot of work on this, and it, it turns out that playing bridge is food for the brain. And bridge for the brain is something that we've actually trademarked and something that we think is a marketing slogan that that will actually attract people to the game. How do you like to unwind after a tournament? Or is this just all in a day's work for you and it's just on to the next bridge thing? Well, the level of the tournament makes a difference. Let's be honest. If you'll notice the pace of play at the club game compared to the pace of play at the sectional, compared to the pace of play at a regional 
compared to the pace of play in a spin gold match. I am more hyped up at the nationals than I am at a regional that I've gone to 15 years in a row. But I, you know, try to take pride as a professional, always play hard. But there's no doubt that the players around me take more time at higher levels and that I, for some reason, in almost a Helgamo-esque way, at a higher level, the hands come alive and you see things that you wouldn't see at a lower level sectional. And the truth is you're just paying attention more closely, but you don't really realize it. You don't think of it that way. It's not that the hands are juiced. It's just that we're putting more thought into them. I'm curious about this issue of the pace of the play, because honestly, if I was allowed at a club game to take the time that you're allowed to take at a high level game, I would very happily sit there and take that time. The major difference here is that if you're in a pair game, you have to play at a pace that allows for the orderly progression of the game. If there are 50 people involved in changing the route, you have to come to some sort of norm. Everyone can sort of agree that after this period of time, you need to change the route. If you contrast that with what's called a knockout match, now there are only two tables, and in fact, only the four players at your table who are disturbed by the place of play. And so if I was the time czar, which I am not, I would definitely allow more time on individual hands and knockouts. The great thing about a knockout is if you're playing a set of 16 boards, if you take an extra period of time on board two or boards three, board five is going to come along and it's going to go one no, three no, and you're going to claim nine tricks when the dummy hits and you're going to catch up. Right. And you've got 15 boards or 16 boards to catch up. If you're playing a two board pair game, all the railroad cars begin to run into each other on the tracks. <laughs> is the way I describe it. If the conductor doesn't keep, you know, the changes going. So Got it. That makes good sense. I also, just while we're on the subject, I, I believe slow play to be a behavioral problem and not really to be subject to changing the score. In, in my world, uh, there was a famous player by the name of Matt Granovetter who was incredibly slow player. Finally, one year, they took him off to committee and they said, next year, if we have the same problems with you, we're not going to allow you to enter the tournament the year after. That's a behavioral issue. And when you treat slow play as a behavioral issue, you will find out, indeed, Mr. Granovetter wanted to play the spin gold that third year, and he started playing faster. But if you just change the board, change the quarter of a board's three up penalty or quarter of a board score, I think one is you've disrespected the game. The game is so powerful and so wonderful that you shouldn't go about changing the score. You should be very loath to change the score of a bridge hand that actually occurred at a table. You should give it great respect. But if a player is just playing too slowly, there's a simple solution. You just don't let him play. And indeed, when players are faced with not getting to play their beloved bridge, they play faster. Chris, what would your regular partner, what would they say is your greatest strength when it comes to bridge? Well, I think I'm uh, very experienced in the bidding. I've played years and years and years of rubber bridge where you played enormous amount of hands. And so some of the most unusual hands, I know how to show the difference between 7-5 and 6-5 and even 8-5 in the bidding. And I would hope that I have the ability to put the last hand behind me I hope that would be viewed as a strength because uh, I think that as a player, Bob Hammond's advice of on to the next is perhaps the greatest single advice that a bridge player can be given. Uh, Marty Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania did a uh, study 
of world-class athletes, and he included the bridge players. And he had his 64 questions, and we filled them all out. And it turned out, indeed, that Hammond and Wolf, as a pair, or as people, came out number one and number two on his test of all the bridge players. And what that indicated to him is that they had the most grit. They had the ability to go down in six hearts three times in a row on a finesse, and on the next hand, on the fourth hand, grind away in two clubs to make sure that they made 110 instead of 90. And perhaps, you know, the ability to just blank out whatever just happened. And uh, along those lines, one of my favorite things to do when things get harried at the table, when things start going south, when things are going badly, is to try to hum your favorite melody inside your brain. So it might be a Beatles tune. It might be Yesterday, the song the Beatles wrote. It, It might be We Are the Champions. And I think that humming inside your brain will focus your, in an odd way, it it calms the brain and focuses it and allows it to return to the problem at hand. Uh, And I will have to give my wife, Donna, credit for first talking about that to me. She was involved as the coach of a lot of U.S. teams, and that's the same advice that she gave to all of her players, which is when you get emotional, you feel yourself getting fogged. Try humming uh, your favorite melody inside your brain and see if it doesn't allow you to return to the task at hand. And since she advised you to do that, you've really noticed that you have a greater ability to disengage from the stress of the previous hand? I try to, and I certainly actively do it at the table. Which song do you hum? I like all of the stuff from Phantom of the Opera and anything from Evita. Antonio Banderas and Madonna did quite a spectacular job of that. So I have all that music, and that's the sort of thing that I would hum inside my head. Dramatic and compelling. Yes, I guess you could you could hum Red Solo Cup by Toby Keith, if that's what you like. <laughs> no, that would be very annoying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what would your regular partner perhaps say is your weakest area in the game? I am sure the weakest area in the game is slowing down on defense to visualize exactly so that when something unusual comes up, you know, you play so many hands and so many of them are what I would say do rigueur or you follow your classical training on so many of them that you have to slow down and find out when there is something unusual to do. So I would definitely think my visualization on defense would be weaker than my my bidding, both my constructive and competitive bidding, all of it. And I'm not sure why. Because I, I can see that when I play against a player like Helgemo, that he processes faster than I do. Hammond was once playing in an individual with screens, and he was defending a hand. And he could tell from the speed of his partner's play that it was Helgemo that he was playing with. So some of the processors of the card play are really spectacularly fast. And the rest of us are just going to have to try and make up for that in some other manner. Is there anything that you do to work on developing your visualization skills? I can talk to you about something that we teach everyone, which is to call the the pin number. Every bridge hand is a four-digit pin number. If you think of it, if you're a 4432, that's your distribution. You have four spades, four hearts, three diamonds, and two clubs. That's the pin number of your hand. The dummy has a pin number. Each of the four suits is split around the table. 
in terms of a PIM number. So if you are a new player, it seems like it's not the worst thing in the world to make yourself up a little thing. And let's see, you go six, three, blank, two. And the job is how fast can you realize that six, three, blank, two has to be six, three, two, two. And you can do it uh, with, you know, you can do it with five, one, three, blank. And how fast can you recognize that five, one, three, blank, that the blank has to be a four? And can you just get to where you're faster at it, where you've grooved your synopsis? Because through repetition, which is an incredible part of bridge, can you just get faster at recognizing the shape of the hand around the table just by practicing these the simple thing? You can also do a four-by-four four Sudoku, where all the columns have to total to 13. Anything that works with the number 13 should help a beginning bridge player become more facile at bridge. And it is not an accident that 1 divided by 26 is a 12-digit left-shifting decimal, and that 1 divided by 26 is one of the hardest fractions to work with, and that the deck has 52 cards, and that we're working in four groups of 13. All of this is part of the beauty of a deck of cards and just the special number that is 13. It's a hard number to work with. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you at Bridge? Okay, well, I'll tell a great story here. I had a friend, it was about 1988, and he won the open border match at the North American Nationals. And in the intervening year, he was due to defend the next year. In the intervening year, the 10 to 12 no Trump, the mini no Trump, swept North America. Everybody began to be certain that the 10 to 12 no Trump was the greatest thing since sliced bread. However, for my partner who had won the border match, 10 to 12 no Trump was not exactly the best thing for him. He was a double PhD in statistics and genetics who believed he was safer driving his own car than flying. So he comes back the second year having won the four-session border match, and he has the inability to sit at the table and play. He has a panic attack, and he has to withdraw, and his team has to play without him. So being a brilliant man, never having seen a psychiatrist or a psychologist in his life, he's having these panic attacks all of a sudden about bridge. So he decides what is there to do but go to see a professional to see if they can figure out what is going on. So he goes to the psychiatrist for about six weeks. He tells the psychiatrist all about things. He tells him he's a statistician. He tells him he thinks he's safer driving his own car than flying. He tells them uh, all about bridge, but the psychiatrist doesn't play bridge, but it dominates the conversation. So they go on for about six weeks, and the psychiatrist looks at him and says, you know, I don't know a thing about bridge, but you love bridge, and it's your passion. And you've talked to me about this 10 to 12 no trump, and you've told me that this 10 to 12 no trump is like throwing the ball up in the middle of the court and playing, having a free-for-all to collect the ball. She says, I don't know about this thing about bridge, but I don't think you should play this 10 to 12 no trump. And sure enough, <laughs> my guy stopped playing 10 to 12 no trump and he never had another panic attack and he was fine. <laughs> That's great. That is really great. <laughs> Do you have a favorite convention or gadget that you really just love to use? My favorite convention is the Terrorist Two Spade opening bit. I shouldn't have named it the terrorist to spade it because it, it, it's got such a bad connotation. 
But basically, the idea was to open two spades on any weak preempt at the three level in any of the four suits. So but first thing that happened was that when you didn't open two spades, when you actually opened three clubs or three diamonds or three hearts or three spades, you could play those were sound preempts, which helped your bidding. When you did open two spades, if it was the opponent's hand, you had created complete havoc, so much havoc that they made it a brown sticker convention and they don't let you play it at hardly any levels. But I would say it's a much maligned convention, possibly due to its name, because what we found when we opened two spades with a bad hand, and it was our side's hands, our constructive turn to bid, it was our six hard hand because our partner had 23 high cards. What we found was that when we opened two spades and our partner bid two no trump forcing, we could transfer back, and we found out we were ahead of everybody else in the room constructively. But the destructive effect of opening two spades on any of the four suits is just not to be so difficult to defend that they basically outlawed it, uh, most regulating authorities, except in long knockout matches at uh, the highest levels. So, yes, I'm very fond of the terrorist two spades, but the league's not as fond of it as I am. What about conventions that you're less of a fan of? Well, some conventions are just bad. Foster Echo is a flawed carding system. It is inferior, and it should be stamped out and not played. Why? If I understand Foster Echo, the premise is that I play my second hardest, second highest card if I am unable to beat the dummy against uh, no trump. And so if I have nine, eight, third, and they lead low, and the dummy has jack, 10, third, and plays the jack, for some reason, I'm supposed to play the eight from the eight, nine, three. And I have no idea how this can be valuable to my partner. All I know is that if when the dummy wins the trick with the jack or lower, if I give my partner a count signal, then everything will be fine. After all, my attitude is known by my failure to beat the jack. And since my attitude is known, all that's left is count. And this idea that I should play my second highest card in some situations is just incorrect. And it has sort of lost flavor. Uh, we did remove it from the convention card. It used to be a box on the convention card, which really drove us all crazy. But the competition committee has removed Foster Echo from the convention card. What's the best bridge tip or advice you've ever been given? The best bridge tip or advice I've ever been given is on to the next. Just put the last hand behind you no matter what happened. As my friend Mr. Hammond would say, don't think about what you're having for dinner. Try not to think about the fight you had with your spouse. Try not to think about the money pressures. Uh, try not to think about your child. Try to make sure that you're actually just trying to solve the puzzles and put everything else aside until the game is over. It's incredibly hard advice to follow. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much, Chris. It's really been great. Jocelyn and Catherine, thank you very much for having me. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Chris Compton. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Thank you also to our friend, Larry Cohen. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. These links and a link to our merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. 
but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Chris says, focus on the problem at hand. Put everything else aside until the game is over. (laughs) Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.